Hello and welcome to this episode of the Basis Podcast, Agronomy Matters. My name's Greg Hopkinson, Head of Business Development at Basis. In this month's episode, we're going to be speaking to three guests about a different area of agriculture in the UK, livestock production. We're going to be specifically focusing on how integrating livestock production within current arable-focused farming systems can provide significant benefits, whether that's improving soil health, reducing grassweed pressure, increasing farm profitability, or reducing overall fertilizer costs. The concept of regenerative agriculture is becoming increasingly popular in the UK, with many farmers and growers looking at how they can produce crops in a more sustainable way with reduced inputs and greater focus on a farming system which enhances a wider environment and the resources it utilizes. And many of these benefits can be realized from the introduction of livestock into an arable farming system. Bases have also recently started having a much more significant involvement within livestock farming through the launch of Register of Sheep Advisors, which has been developed in collaboration with the National Sheep Association. This new professional register will be supporting well-rounded, knowledgeable advisors who can provide comprehensive advice to UK sheep farmers as they look to overcome future challenges and capitalise on significant opportunities. If you'd like to find out more about ROSA, then please visit the website using the link which can be found in the show notes for this podcast episode. So our first guest on this episode of Agronomy Matters is Liz Jennifer, independent consultant within the UK sheep industry. Liz has recently been supporting the National Sheep Association as they've worked alongside BASIS to develop and launch the Register of Sheep Advisors. And Liz is going to be discussing how sheep can be introduced into an arable farming system with a focus on forage crops and cover crops. Liz is followed by Vari Dawson, Research and Development Manager at Barrenbrook UK, who supply and advise on forage crops and grassland seed in both the agriculture and amenity industries. Mari tells us a bit about how having grassland within an arable rotation can help improve soil health, reduce grassweed burden, and provide diversification opportunities for farmers. And finally, we were joined by Ian Richards, an independent consultant and member of the Facts Committee within Basis. Ian has a wealth of experience within crop nutrition and fertiliser, and we discussed what benefits can be achieved through the application of livestock manures. Ian also provided some advice on how to make sure you maximise these benefits through effective nutrient management planning and application, and how to ensure you meet all the requirements within current legislation and codes of practice, which help protect the wider environment from the potential risks of livestock manure application and storage. So now let's meet our first guest. So our first guest on this episode of Agronomy Matters is Liz Jennifer, independent consultant working in the UK sheep industry. So over recent years, there's been a growing interest in the introduction of sheep into arable farming systems, and that's really coincided with the increased use of cover crops and other green manures. Now Liz is going to talk to us today about what benefits sheep can bring to an arable farm and how to maximise their positive impact. So thanks for joining us today, Liz, and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. Hello, Greg. So firstly, I think over the last 50 years or so, agriculture has developed, and I think the number of truly mixed farms has probably decreased, um, with less businesses integrating kind of crop production and livestock production. 
So why do you think that's been the case and, and what's been the main driver behind that? So I think it's the sort of drive towards more specialist farming systems. So do you mean in terms of the investment needed now into arable systems is vast, isn't it? So it's trying to make the most of every parcel of land, really. Um, we have to also accept that livestock does take some different skills and labour is required every day of the year. And certainly as sort of generation shift and interest levels change from sheep or livestock into arable, that the sort of the labour units that were interested in it on farm may have retired or moved elsewhere and people have just become more specialist. Um, there's also the attitude towards sheep, which is probably the case in, in that they are they can be hard work at certain times of year or high labour requirements. Uh, and there's also questions in terms of margins across against other businesses. So I think it's a, it's a mixture of ideas, but I think there's this drive for more specialist farm between arable only systems, use of artificial fertilizers and chemicals came in to deal with some of the, the issues that livestock would have dealt with before. So the yeah, multifactorial, I suppose, this thing to say is reasons. And it's been interesting to see now that actually there has been a bit of a focus of reintroducing livestock, especially on, on certain farms. And one of the key reasons behind this has been uh, has been soil health and the benefits um, livestock can bring. So um, increasing soil organic matter levels. So how can introducing sheep help improve soil health? And it's what's important to say, it's not the sheep per se that's going to magically bring organic matter onto those soils. So what we what we know about uh, building soil health it's to do with reducing cultivation so how many times that soil is turned over over a period of a few years and increasing diversity of plant species that within that soils so when we move to a cover crop sort of system and ideally maybe into a grass lake type system into those arable rotations we're helping to reduce cultivations and we're helping to bring diversity into those into those plant populations and we just happen to be using sheep to to utilize those crops we could also be selling that into ad so an anaerobic digestion plant we could be grazing cattle on it so it's the changes that have to happen into the arable rotation that, that benefits soil health and we're using or others are using sheep to just help harvest that material and, and convert it into meat that is then saleable um, so it's and i think what we have to think is important, especially if we're focusing on cover crops, is where do those sheep go to for the rest of the year? So a lot of the farms I work with are might have pockets of permanent pasture that can't be ploughed for other reasons or cultivated for other reasons where sheep will disappear to for a proportion of the year. Or they're starting to pull it, push um, grass lays into those rotations as well um, for black grass or other reasons. Part of the challenge, are you going to feed the sheep every day of the year? And just and just relying on cover crops can be challenging to know where out where do they go basically when those when those um, fields need to be cultivated. Yeah, it is obviously really important to, like you say, think about the whole the whole system. But yeah, say we've got a farmer who's got cover crops and they're, and they're thinking about utilizing utilizing sheep as part of this system. What advice would you give for them for doing this, and what and like what are the kind of practical things they need to consider? So, the, and, and we're not, I suppose the argument is that we're not encouraging lots of people to go out and buy their own sheep. I mean, at the moment, we've got record high sheep prices or lamb prices, which generally means high breeding ewe price. So it's actually quite a challenging time to get into sheep at this time. So part of it is also thinking of, um, could you sort of almost go, 
a, a grazing license so can you actually graze someone else's sheep on those cover crops is a is an approach i'm i'm starting a program called carbon dating which is trying to link up car, uh, arable farmers who need stock with stock farmers who need land in those particularly winter months so i think it's it's identifying whether there is anybody local that can utilize those crops or whether you have to find someone where you can rent that and land out to and have a think about labor and water and the sort of infrastructure requirements of that and then from a cover crop perspective you know as we know that sowing date is really key in terms of yield potential for them so again having an understanding of what crop is it following what is the likely yield of those cover crops i know it's we haven't got a crustal ball ready but we can we can gauge something from sowing date and then that allows us to then understand how many sheep we can graze for how long so we can work that out we know how how many kilos of dry matter a day a sheep needs we know how many kilos of dry matter there is available and it's and it's relatively simple maths to get to that point of how many sheep can be supported but i think in those early days of starting to do cover crops i would look to try and find local farmers who could utilize that uh, and then as you build a system or build a rotation up then potentially it could be your own stock coming in um, but yeah it's it's finding it's finding the animals that can that can utilize it and I think and some of the challenge then is the expectation of what income is going to come from those animals we are but it's saving you potentially a couple of machinery passes because there's it's a destruction of those cover crops that you don't have to then use a machine and fuel to do so but it is really encouraging more of a partnership approach than encouraging lots of people to go and buy some sheep and so we found our friendly sheep farmer who's going to graze their, their sheep. They're all friendly. Yeah. What are we thinking about species then? What species should we be growing as a cover crop if we want to really maximise sheep production as well? Um, the delight of sheep and all, or a lot, well, most ruminants is they're really uh, adaptable to what food source they can take in. So the things we have to be really careful about is transition. So we need to make sure that those animals aren't hungry we um, need to make sure that um, they've got water and fiber and all of those things so that's quite manageable so in terms of the mixture they're they're relatively capable of utilizing quite a lot of different cover crop options the things to be watch out for is things like buckwheat and linseed so they aren't particularly nice for animals so they can cause problems but certainly uh, popular ones are things like fodder radish anything with some oats for celia vetches right all of those there's there's a real great mixture of things that can go into those cover crops that that sheep and other ruminants can utilize really effectively if they're managed carefully to transition onto that crop so worst case scenario is the lorry rocks up the sheep have been been transported for several hours quite hungry quite empty and they just turn on to this really lush crop and allowed to gorge themselves that's when we start to get problems within those animals so it's managing that transition that's really important yeah but certainly in terms of what is the dream mixture it comes down to what is the cheapest one to put in we know it's about diversity but a lot of it's just about getting green material actively growing in that soil but some of my favorites are things i really like oats um vetches uh sometimes quite challenging in terms of getting the value from annual clovers um, again, it's really based on when when can those mixtures go into that soil. Um, 
and that's why oats or seals or grasses and some brassicas work really well but i appreciate they have repercussions for the for the future rotations of um, and dealing with um sort of well i suppose pest and disease issues or herbicide sure a lot of arable, yeah i'm sure a lot of advisors and arables they'll be happy to have the flexibility there kind of um, and like saying what what works best for both parties isn't it is what is what is key yeah and, and it's starting those conversations quite early so especially those the friendly sheep farmers have probably got quite a lot of experience of grazing cover crops and they know which do better and which don't so it's also harnessing that information that is from like their experiences in the last few years um, and certainly that's where the sort of oat vetch sort of story is starting to come out is a lot more reliable in terms of providing dry matter um, the other thing to be watchful for is obviously we don't because how we're sowing them and that and when we're sowing them we're not expecting a huge amount of ground cover so we can so we have to be quite careful in wet conditions to try and avoid soil damage so we're there trying to promote soil health and actually we just have to think about how we're grazing it in the winter to try and avoid any form of poaching but in reality what tends to happen is those animals get moved quite frequently over a relatively large bit of land so they they might do some minor damage for on a wet day but then they're moved on to another block and that is given some time to recover. So talking about kind of the environment and environmental issues, my last couple of questions are going to focus on that. And, and one thing is, is meat production. Obviously, there's a lot of talk in the media at the minute about the environmental credentials of that. So if you're an arable farmer and you're concerned about this, if, what do you think? If you introduce sheep onto your farm, is that going to have a positive or negative impact on kind of the environmental credentials of your farm? So I think it, and for me, it has to slightly fit into the philosophy of the arable farmer. So we know there's a lot of interest in regenerative techniques and cover crops and, and particularly bringing in grass lays into arable rotations are part of that story. Um, so I think you have to think of it in a wider concept, both for the farm, but also if so, let's think about that we've managed to buy several hundred store lambs out of Derbyshire, for example, and they're moved into the flatlands of Lincolnshire um, onto cover crops. So those animals, instead of being, instead of straw and feed and everything being moved into the into Derbyshire, potentially they're in sheds, um, they're actually moving to the feed. So they're being moved. So it's a quite an old fashioned way of actually animals are moved around the country to where the feed is being grown. So it might not necessarily benefit the environmental credentials of the arable farm, but actually it has a real big impact for the, the farm they're working in partnership with because it's reducing the costs and the inputs going into that farm. And one of the biggest pinch points for a lot of those beef and sheep sorry yeah beef and sheep farms particularly on the wetter side of england is is winter time so actually if they can move a lot of animals off their farm during winter it, it makes it a lot more manageable so it's sort of there's a bit about the greater good but on that individual arable farm there will be some benefits in, as i mentioned in terms of reduced need for machinery passes for destruction of cover crops during there's benefits for highly available so as that cover crop passes through an animal it becomes highly available nutrients so for the next crop there's some benefits in terms of under from uh, sort of readily available nutrients so but in all honesty there's some work going on at the moment but we don't have what the magic numbers are so what is the value per hectare for their following crop and the following crop after that by having sheep on there for a few months 
I would suggest it probably needs longer than a few months to have a real big impact on that soil health. And um, but we're, it's really challenging to try and quantify that impact. A lot of it at the minute is because it feels like it's the right thing to do. Um, but there is some research work happening to try and quantify what are the benefits for the arable farm to have sheep or cattle or whatever into that rotation. And finally, just to look to the future a bit more, Elms is just around the corner and a lot of growers will be thinking about how they integrate this agri-environment scheme into their business. So do you think running a mixed farm or integrating livestock into, into your system is going to make funding through these schemes easier or is it going to make it more complex and more challenging? So we know from the sort of experience with mid-tier, which is the GS4 option, which is this herbal lay option, and that's going into arable land or temporary grassland is really popular. Um, the general reason why that is, is because it's there's quite a lot of money per hectare. So it compensates for the income foregone of not growing that arable crop. Um, I should have shut down my inbox. Uh, but in terms of, so the, we've seen sort of options. So GS4 option is available and really taken up, uh, had really a good take up. And that is... I mean, there's a slight restriction on the month you can't graze it for a, a few weeks in the spring just to allow to ensure that it flowers but most of the time it fits really well into sheep systems um so that's sort of given us a hint that actually if that integration is really or the policymakers are really interested in integration um but obviously that's only one example from the mid-tier scheme but it demonstrates that when it's set up in a way that actually works really well to get sheep back onto that land, the uptake's high. There's other options that are more money, but actually there's greater restrictions on grazing and they, they're not being taken up as well for within the livestock sector. And the other thing we have to be really careful of is a lot of those, those prescriptions require red clover in the swords and red clover does have issues from a fertility perspective on sheep in the autumn around topping time. So, it's having some flexibility on some of those lays not to have doing other clovers are fine, but red clover um, can have issues and it's and then, but at a farm level, we wouldn't want every field into a GS4 high herbal lay mixture anyway. It's about having a proportion of that area, but that's the only thing that people need to be careful of is the red clover element, particularly if you're using it for topping use on. Perfect. That, that's great, Liz. And, and thanks for joining us today. I think that's been a, a real good um, introduction into how we could potentially utilise sheep in, in arable systems. So yeah, thanks for joining us. Our second guest on this episode of Agronomy Matters is Mari Dawson, Research and Development Manager at Barrenbrook UK. Now, Mari's work involves researching forage crops and grassland. And we're going to talk today a bit about how introducing these crops into an arable rotation can be beneficial. So thanks for joining us today and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. Thank you for having me, Greg. It's good to be here. So firstly, some of our listeners might not have too much involvement in grassland and forage crops. They might be more arable based. So can you just explain a bit who are Barrenbrug and, and what do they do? Yeah, so Barrenbrug UK is part of the Royal Barrenbrug Group. We're a fourth generation family owned business originally established in Holland in 1904. The Barrenbrook Group operates in both amenity and the agricultural sectors, although I'll be focusing on the agricultural side today, obviously. 
Essentially, we're a grass breeding company, but in reality, we're more than that. We're really trying to help farmers make the most of grass and forage, not just in its role as a fantastic feedstuff in sustainable livestock production, but for all other benefits, soil health, conservation, carbon storage, nutrient management, and so on. Um, so Barnbury is active all around the world, hand in hand with each operating company. We have research and development teams specific to the region, ensuring we have uh, local breeding, local development, local people and local production in every market that we operate in. And all alongside that, we benefit from the support and knowledge of being part of that global team. The UK company has been active for nearly 40 years now, and we have had a UK focused breeding programme for 30 years, a grass breeding programme that is. This year sees an exciting expansion in our trials work as we're adding more stringent replicated trials in five diverse British sites on top of the work we do with individual farms and recommended lists and so on. We also work very closely with a number of farmers to produce our grassy varieties here in the UK too. That's um, really interesting about kind of research and development and trials. You mentioned that a lot there. So that's obviously important for your job role. Can you tell us a bit more about what research is currently being carried out in grassland and forage crops and, and what kind of innovations are we likely to see in the next few years? So my work in research and development probably comes in two forms, uh, the first of which uh, is varietal breeding. That's kind of the most obvious thing. Uh, we're just as focused on new varieties within all the different species as cereal breeders are, for example. And we're also striving to develop new varieties that offer improvements in the traditional characteristics such as yield, nutritional quality, disease resistance. But then there's the secondary work, the development of products for use on farm, for example, developing the most effective sustainable solutions uh, of varieties for specific uses in specific locations. There's a lot of emerging trends coming through for grassland as well that we've been working on for a, a number of years. Uh, those are alongside the key characteristics of yield and quality, but identifying and isolating traits that we can use to build in greater tolerance of extreme weather conditions, such as flooding or drought. Grass and forage that offers farmers better nutrient use efficiency. And we're also looking at varieties and species that provide a broader range of nutritional benefits for livestock, for example, higher trace element contents, uh, or those with antiparasitic properties as well. Increasingly, we're accounting not only for ever-changing legislative and support system demands, but also that global demand that there is just now for more biodiverse and sustainable production. In our case, that's looking at how we can use grass and forage crops to reduce inputs, food miles, greenhouse gas emissions, but whilst improving carbon capture, protecting soils and promoting healthy and diverse whole farm ecosystems. It's really satisfying to see that the message is getting through. Our customer base is, become, our customer base is becoming increasingly diverse, as well as livestock producers and the equestrian market. We're seeing a much greater interest from arable growers, vineyards, and others who want to invest in the power of good grasslands, which is great. It's interesting to see the kind of parallels between arable and, and grassland, really. All those kind of things, nutrient use efficiency, um, nutrition, carbon capture, all the kind of things that people in the arable kind of industry are looking at as well. And you yeah, mentioned there, yeah, and, and you mentioned there about arable farmers are looking at introducing grassland into the rotation. And kind of over the last 10 or 15 years, Grassweed pressures and especially black grass in some areas has been a real driver for that. How can we utilize grassland effectively to achieve black grass control? Black grass is the inevitable arable headache, and more and more we are being asked the question about how grassland could be utilized to, to help with that problem. Um, I think every farmer knows there's no single solution, and of course, black grass is a survivalist. 
which can create an awful lot of seeds per plant in a season. But there's two schools of thought in how productive grassland can help with grass weeds. One is to sow grass at a much higher rate, say 42, 44 kilos a hectare, which is around about 17, 18 kilos per acre equivalent, and include in the mix a higher diploid percentage and some perennial species, such as perennial ryegrass. These types of grasses provide higher plant populations, which can smother out black grass and outcompete it. Alternatively, you can sow grass seed at a more traditional rate of around 34 kilos per hectare or 14 kilos per acre, and actually allow the black grass to germinate and then cut the sward before the black grass sets seed. This is not for the faint-hearted, though. It does require quite a bit of attention to detail, frequent monitoring, food count. It's not for the faint-hearted, though. This does require a reasonable amount of attention to detail. It does require frequent monitoring of the field and frequent cutting. It is not for a system such as looking for you know, just a single hay cut in the middle of June. It's uh, worth looking at some research presented by AHDB a couple of years ago. They showed that, well done, this approach can reduce seed burdens by up to 90% over a couple of years. However, we'd recommend using this uh, tactic for three to four years to be most beneficial. And another driver you spoke about um, earlier was kind of organic matter and carbon capture and, and soil health. And that's another driver why arable farmers are kind of introducing grassland into the rotation. So how can grassland help with, with those aspects? Grassland can offer a lot of benefits, particularly where a mixed sward is used. So traditionally, a lot of uh, swards have been just ryegrass based or very simple, diverse mixtures, ryegrass, timothy, white clover. Um, however, we now we're looking at species that are bringing in, or sorry, mixtures that are bringing in more and more diverse range of grass species legume species and forage herbs. Often we refer to these as herbal ways. Central to this is the root system. We often hear um, about deep tap roots being mentioned, and obviously these are great for soil structures and lifting nutrients from deeper in the profile, but a real varied root system that offers wide branched fibrous and deep roots brings about the most benefit. It's important to remember that root mass is just as important as root depth. These extensive root systems help with soil stability, drought tolerance and water infiltration. They improve soil structure and allow for more space for air and water and nutrient cycling. The roots exude unique chemicals that help feed a diverse population of soil microbes, which of course in turn helps further improve the nutrient cycling to the plants. Soil stability and soil cover are really important to prevent both erosion and runoff. And basically healthier soils equals healthier plants equals healthier livestock where relevant and healthier whole farm ecosystem. The inclusion of legumes such as red clover or lucerne are really good for soil structure with their tap roots, but they also fix atmospheric nitrogen. This reduces the need for artificial applications to grassland, really important given the rising prices and also its significant contributions to farming's greenhouse gas emissions. What's more, it can leave residual nitrogen for the subsequent crops in the rotation. Some farmers are finding that they can reduce nitrogen inputs by as much as a quarter in a first wheat following a grass and legume sward, whilst boosting yield by 5% or more. Legume mixes can also reduce the farm's bought-in protein requirement for livestock. Obviously, where there's grass and forage, there's often livestock, and the, life, the livestock itself contributes by recycling nutrients back via dung and urine, and any trampled forage breaks down into the soil. There's also um, dung, you know, bulky for organic manures to consider as well, where there are livestock. Carbon is obviously one of the key drivers, and of course there's a vast amount of research to show that longer, the longer a grass sward is retained, the higher the levels of carbon compared to when it was in an arable use. 
Work published by ADAS in 2011 showed a 24% increase in soil organic carbon after six years reversion from arable. And so we're looking at all these benefits. We've seen organic matter, grass weeds, whatever your driver is. And if you're an arable farmer and you're thinking, oh, I need to introduce grassland into my rotation or a new opportunity has arisen that um, means it's now viable. What would be your real top tips in terms of agronomy of grassland? Well, I'd like to thank you for the wording of that question. Uh, yes, the best way to look at grassland is to treat it as a crop, just like a field of wheat. And often grassland can get overlooked, but grassland agronomy doesn't have to be complicated. Firstly, set your objectives for the field in question. Are there any local challenges? For example, is it a really sandy field? Knowing these details will help whittle down the right selection from the many species and different varieties within species that are available. Soil health is obviously incredibly important. Aim for P and K indices that are two, maintained at two, and a pH of at least 6.2, especially where there are legumes being used. Don't forget the importance of soil structure too. Sward management really depends on the species and the use of the field. Uh, be kind to the sward, particularly in the early months of its life, because investing in that good establishment will pay back over the lifespan of the field. Simple tips, whether it's grazing or silage, don't let it get too short. Leave some green material because that will help the grass to recover more quickly. You don't want to go below around about four centimetres or 1500 kilos of dry matter per hectare equivalent. If you're sowing a legume or herb species, though, you might want to consider increasing that height. Remember to feed the grass relevant to crop offtake as well. One tonne of grass dry matter can remove over seven kilos of phosphorus and 27 of potassium. Italian ryegrass swards, for example, are capable of producing over 20 tonnes of dry matter per hectare where they're really worked hard, so that can soon add up. The HDB Nutrient Management Guide is a great tool for making nutrient management plans for grassland. Finally, make sure you regularly monitor your swards. Walk them regularly throughout the season so that you can see any changes that are happening and address any issues that come up. Obviously, keep on top of soil sampling and soil structures. So we've focused on grassland a lot um, for the first part of this podcast. And but for farmers who are looking to introduce livestock, then forage crops could also be utilised. How do you do this and what forage crops might you use? Again, as I've alluded to previously, there's a huge range of species and also varieties within species. Uh, it depends on exactly what you're looking to achieve. Uh, you know, be it beef, be it sheep, be it dairy, is it a focus on silage, is it a focus on grazing? Um, introducing legumes, as I've mentioned before, white clover is an obvious simple choice, but red clover is an increasingly popular option, such as lucerne, and other legume species are also being more widely used, such as annual clovers like crimson or Persian clover, and bird's foot trefoils, sandfoins. Forage herbs are also gaining momentum. Chicory and plantain are the most common. We hear about them quite a lot, but there's others such as caraway, yarrow, and salad burnet too. Brassicas are another option. Um, these are uh, short-term catch crops such as stubble turnips or forage rape. These could be utilised not only but in-house uh, if you're bringing livestock into your own farm, but perhaps by flying flocks. Uh, you're renting out ground to some new entrants that maybe don't have their own land and might want to utilise it and uh, you know, start a relationship that way. Um, these can be established earlier uh, in the year for summer feed or later in the year for autumn feed. So they're, they can be, they're quite flexible. Kale is another option, but that's more of a main crop option. It needs longer to establish. That tends to be established in the springtime uh, or early summer and then used as a winter feed. 
Fodder beet is something that we're also seeing an increased interest in, particularly with the sheep producers. But the best advice is to work with the livestock farmer whose cattle or sheep you're wanting to introduce uh, if they're not your own, because they'll have their own preferences, their own requirements, and you need to find a solution that fits with your enterprise while solving the challenge and also solving their needs as well. I think that kind of collaboration is a really important uh, point to put across and I think the new entrance thing is really interesting we're all looking at ways we can support new entrants into the industry and if we can help do that by introducing say forage crops or grassland into the rotation that's a, another massive benefit so we spoke a lot about benefits but what about challenges or negative aspects you're an arable farmer at the minute you only grow kind of arable crops and you're thinking about introducing grassland and forage crops what are some of the pitfalls and negatives that you ought to just look out for I'm a livestock person, so it's never a negative to bring some livestock for me. But uh, joking aside, I think one of the main challenges is that there is now a lack of livestock in arable areas. There's a lack of infrastructure, which makes it difficult to bring livestock back onto farms. And depending on how long it has been since there's been livestock on the farm, there could be a lack of knowledge for managing livestock, such as why you 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 saying there before about the collaboration. You know, there are plenty of people out there that have got the livestock and don't have the land. They have the knowledge of the livestock. So those collaborations become very important. Um, you know, cost is another thing. You can't just go back. You can't just go out now and buy 100 cows or 350 ewes. So we're back to planning. You know, you have to spend a good amount of time thinking and trying to really figure out what specific problems are you trying to overcome on your farm and then how what solutions with the livestock can we bring uh, in to solve those problems where you are considering livestock uh, there are an increasing number of young entrants as we've managed as we've mentioned before uh, so talk to them even about starting to take on short-term lets as a starting point there are also opportunities that don't involve livestock. There are many environmental schemes, for example, and obviously Elms is going to be hugely um, influential going forward. There's also the option of growing crops for AD plants, or even growing uh, far or even growing um, fodder to be sold off the farm for livestock elsewhere. But the good thing is there is a great benefit with having grass and forage, and there are so many species and so many varieties that we we can find a solution for everyone. I completely agree. And yeah, finding that solution and finding that system that works from your farm is where you're going to find the real benefit. So thanks for joining us today, Mari. That's been that's been really interesting. And um, yeah, we'll move on to our next guest. Thank you very much. So our final guest on this episode of Agronomy Matters is Ian Richards, independent consultant and member of the Basis Facts Committee. So Ian is an expert on all aspects of crop nutrition and we're going to focus today about how farmers can maximise the utilisation of organic manures. So thanks for joining us today, Ian, and welcome to the Agronomy Matters podcast. So, so firstly, as we start, there's a number of arable farmers who don't obviously have any livestock or don't use any manures as part of their system. So what are the key advantages from kind of introducing livestock manures? Well, first of all, they contain a lot of nutrients, crop nutrients, um, nitrogen, phosphate and potash needed by all crops. And uh, manures are a good source of those nutrients. They often cost less than fertilizers, so you're reducing costs overall by using the manures. Um, they're a good way to raise indices if you've got any fields on the farm with low soil indices of P and K, 
um, applying manures is a very good way of raising those indices relatively quickly, certainly a lot cheaper than trying to do it through use of fertilizers. And of course they add organic matter to the soil, so there's um, all the benefits that brings in terms of water retention, workability, and, and it will store some carbon, which is a, a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And that organic matter and, and carbon is just such a hot topic at the minute and is, and is a real interest, isn't it? But we'll focus firstly on, you mentioned crop nutrition. So you say they contain quite a lot of things like nitrogen and phosphate and potash, but, but how do you actually calculate the nutrients present in an application of a certain manure? Well, to get a rough guide, um, you can use the typical values in Arbitro 9. There are tables in Arbitro 9. Uh, this is the nutrient management guide that AHDB uh, publish. And those tables are quite easy to use once you get the hang of them. They'll give you a, a, a rough, uh, or not a rough, but a typical result for a type of manure, say a poultry manure or a cattle slurry or pig FYM. If you want to get a bit more accurate or get down to a particular batch, then you're into um, analysis, sampling and analysis. Uh, and that, that's a different thing altogether. But the, the lookup tables are quite easy to use uh, and they will give you not only the total nutrient contents, but they'll give you the crop available nutrients. So they tie straight into the recommendation tables in, in RB209. And you mentioned there quickly, you mentioned analysis of, of manures. Is, is that worthwhile doing? And, and is that analysis accurate? Yes, manure analysis can be done. And there are, again, instructions in RB209, same section. Um, it must be done properly. And in the case of slurry in particular, it must be done safely. Um, the, it's, if you look at a heap of farmyard manure, even in a, in a field, you'll see that it varies from place to place. One, there'll be a patch of straw and then a patch of manure and so on. And, and it's quite variable. So it's very important to get a representative sample. You do have to put a bit of work in to do that and follow the instructions carefully. But it's very well worth doing because once you've got it, you've got a, a figure for that particular batch or heap of manure. And you can apply that directly to reducing um, fertilizer use. It translates straight into um, the equivalent of fertilizer. Um, the laboratory analysis will be accurate. Everything depends on getting a good sample, a good representative sample. Uh, and you can, by the way, do uh, analysis for available, uh, not readily available nitrogen in slurry on farm. There's equipment available to do that. But most people will tend to use either the tables in RB209 or they'll send a sample to a laboratory. Okay, so we spoke about kind of um, how we apply the manures and how we measure the nutrients in them. But one thing we're always concerned about is kind of the pollution of water and, and air pollution. And there are certain risks associated with applying livestock manures. So which of those manures are the highest risks and, and what's the emissions and the water pollution that we should be most concerned about? I think, I think the highest risk is probably with the, what are called high readily available nitrogen manures. These are ones where the readily available nitrogen, the ammonium, the nitrate uh, in, in the manure is 30% or more of the total nitrogen in that manure. And this is things like uh, poultry manures uh, pig slurry, cattle slurry, digestate. Um, with those, um, there are particular rules to follow, uh, closed periods and so on, um, because it's recognised that there is a risk of, uh, because there's so much readily available nitrogen, it can be leached as nitrate to water, 
uh, or it can be lost to the air as ammonia if, it, if the material is not handled properly. Um, yeah, those are the main manures that, that are at risk for nitrogen, but I would say that all manures uh, carry a risk of some loss of nutrients if they're left on the soil surface for a long time. Uh, particularly if the land's sloping, you get runoff, you can lose phosphorus as well as nitrogen, uh, some potassium too. Uh, so the main thing is, once material has been applied, uh, get it under the ground as quickly as possible. Uh, if you can see it, if you can see manures on the surface of the soil, they're losing nitrogen. So get them out of sight as quick as you can. That sounds Did simple. Did that answer the question, Greg? Greg, I think I've done it. I think done that's, that sounds about right. Yeah, that's um, it, that sounds simple advice. I think we're all concerned about kind of how we um, apply them in an environmentally sensitive way. And um, yeah, getting them out of sight as quickly as possible sounds a, a very simple and easy way to, to do that. So you quickly mentioned regulations there and... Um, Obviously, like you say, because those risk the environment, there are going to be regulations around around the use of manures. What are those specific regulations that farmers who are applying livestock manures, especially those who are applying them for the first time, um, need to consider? Right, well, NVZ rules, um, they cover England, Scotland, Wales, and NAP, well, um, nitrogen and phosphorus regulations in Northern Ireland. Um, they, they cover the use of manures, and there are things like field limit, limiting the total amount of nitrogen you can apply in manures in a year. Um, there are closed periods, times of the year, months of the year, when you can't apply manures, and, and they vary with soil type and so on. Um, there, are, there are limits on the, the stocking rate you can have on farms, although that tend, wouldn't tend to affect most mixed farms. It, it could uh, affect specialist livestock farms. Um, in England also, we now have farming rules for water, which also uh, uh, cover the use of um, manures and, and they have a they have a, a, a rule in in them that says that application of any nutrients must not exceed the needs of the soil and crop on that land or give rise to a significant risk of agricultural diffuse, diffuse pollution so all these regulations are trying to do one thing that is to ensure that the manures are used effectively and efficiently uh, they're applied when the plants need them and they give rise to a low risk of any loss to the water or, or the air uh, in, in the environment. And if anyone wants to find out any more, anything more specific, where, whereabouts is the guidance and the regulate on those kind of regulations? Is it, is it all online? Yeah, the NVZ guidance is at the DEFRA website. If you go to www.gov.uk and just put um, NVZ in the search box, you'll come to the uh, pages that cover uh, reg the, the guidance for um, nitrate vulnerable zones. Uh, farming rules for water, same. If you go to the gov.uk website, put in farming rules for water and you go straight to the page that uh, has those, or it'll be listed, the page will be listed with uh, guidance for those rules. Perfect. And one other thing to consider, we spoke about the kind of application and then incorporation of manures, but obviously quite often you have to store them. Um, what would be your advice for kind of best practice around this and are there any regulations to consider? Yeah well the, the best thing is to have enough storage capacity or enough storage arrangement to ensure that you can keep the manures until a time when the crop needs them which usually is in the spring. So you need enough storage to cover the, uh, the winter period. There are rules affecting that it, it, again if you're in an NVZ uh, you need six months uh, storage for pig slurry and poultry manure you need five months for cattle slurry 
So those those are regulations, they're requirements in, in, in the NVZs. If you're using farmyard manure or solid manures, then you can use field heaps. And those have certain rules attached to them too. Again, again, NVZ rules, um, 12 months maximum on the same site. They can be left on the same site maximum 12 months and you can't return to that site within two years. So there, yes, there are, there are rules and they must be 10 meters, the, the field heap must be at least 10 meters from any surface water and so on and so on, 30 meters of its sloping ground. You have to record the positions on risk maps. There are quite a few rules around the, the storage of slurry and, and manures generally, um, as you can imagine, because if you get a leak from a slurry lagoon, uh, it, can be, it can be quite devastating. So it's important that those materials are stored properly. So we spoke right at the start um, about the benefits of using manures, and I think we've, we've shown that um, there are some real great benefits, but there are risks associated. So I just wanted to finish with one final question is, are there any situations where you would avoid applying livestock manures, or is it always a good thing to do? No, it isn't always a good thing. To do. It's always a good thing in general, to, in principle, to do, but the detail is important. I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend applying manures when there's little prospect that the nutrients in them can be taken up by the crop or where there's a risk of runoff. Obviously, there's a risk of any runoff. So you wouldn't put them on um, in, in the middle of winter. You wouldn't put them on sloping ground just before there's going to be heavy rainfall and so on and so forth. It's a bit of common sense required there. Um, the, the, the short answer to the question, I suppose, is that you avoid putting them on when they're non when, when the application is non-compliant with, with NVZ rules or farming rules for water. Uh, and the way to look at it is those rules are not just there to restrict what's done on the farm. They are actually quite good at giving uh, good agronomic advice on how to get the best from those manures. So if you follow those rules, you follow the closed periods, you follow the times when you can apply them, you follow the maximum rates of, of application, you sh should get the best uh, value from those manures anyway. Um, yeah, they're, they're, they're not just just uh, an attack on the farmer they are they are in effect to help the farmer that's really good that's a really positive way to to finish thinking that if you follow those rules and you can tick them and you think yep this application meets all those those rules then actually the manure application is going to be beneficial to me as well um as the farmer then that's um that's good good news and like you say it's not just red tape for people to go through so that's great, Ian. That's been really helpful. A really great quick guide to, to using livestock manures on arable farms. And, and thanks again for joining us on the Agronomy Matters podcast. Thank you. Firstly, I'd like to say thanks to all of our guests who have spoken to us today on this episode of Agronomy Matters. I think it's been really interesting to see the different ways livestock can be introduced into an arable farming system and what benefits this could potentially bring. However, I think it's also important that it was identified to access these benefits, it needs careful planning and consideration and potentially specialist advice from others who currently work within the livestock industry. As I said at the start of this podcast, BASES are really excited to be taking our first steps into supporting the UK livestock industries through the Register of Sheep Advisors. If anyone would like to find out more about ROSA, whether that's as a potential member or CPD event organiser, then please visit the ROSA website or go to the BASIS YouTube channel where you can find a recording of the ROSA launch event which was recently hosted by the National Sheep Association. For any of our BASIS professional register members, 
and Register of Sheep Advisor members, you can claim one CPD point for listening to this episode of Agronomy Matters by logging on to the members area on either the Basis or ROSA website, clicking Submit CPD Points, and entering Basis Podcast Livestock into both the reference number and publication title boxes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Basis Podcast, and we'll see you again next time on Agronomy Matters.